Hey, women's basketball fans. It's your favorite producer, Tarika Foster-Brasby. I know we're in the offseason and everything, but that does not mean that women's basketball talk stops. In fact, friend of the podcast, Rebecca Lobo, had a compelling conversation with our ESPNW colleague, Sarah Spain, on Sarah's podcast, That's What She Said. We thought that this interview was so compelling that we wanted to share it with all of you. So... Take a listen to her conversation with Rebecca about her career, about the WNBA. Very interesting tale on how she met her husband. Think that you guys will like it. Also, make sure that you guys are continuing to subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe to Around the Rim so that you don't miss when our new season for women college basketball starts. LaChina and I appreciate it and we appreciate you. Enjoy the interview, guys. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's guest, Rebecca Lobo, on to talk about her career and her life, but also the focus on women and women's basketball as part of the very long 20-hour, 10-part Basketball, A Love Story special film that has been available on ESPN app in uh, all of its 62 short stories. You can watch them all now. But the full film also has been airing in a sort of serialized format in primetime on ESPN television over five Tuesdays, including next week, October 30th, which will have most of the focus on the start of the women's professional game and some of the biggest names and stars that have helped evolve the women's side of the game. Um, also November 13th, both of those from 8 p.m. Eastern to 12 a.m. Uh, those are the last two serialized installments. But like I said, you can watch any of it at any time on the ESPN app now. There's also Basketball, A Love Story, the book by Jackie McMullen and Rafe Bartholomew that's based on interviews done for the film. That has been released as well if you want to buy the book that goes along with the film. Uh, some really fantastic stories um, of, you know, players talking about how they broke into the game, who they looked up to and emulated when they started playing, uh, some of the scandals of the game, the college game, coaching. Um, so highly recommend the film and I get into, uh, different parts of it with Rebecca and also the great story that I love so much about how she met her husband. So hope you enjoyed the interview. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in this week's guest, Rebecca Lobo, a member of the 95 UConn national championship team that went 35 and 0 on the season. She was player of the year that season named to the 2017 class of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame last year. And of course was a founding player in the WNBA with the Liberty as the league began, a WNBA all-star Olympic gold medalist and now an ESPN analyst and commentator. She's on to talk about this amazing story I mentioned in the intro, Basketball, a love story. But I want to get to the good stuff about Rebecca before that film because we haven't had her on yet. And there's just some great stories that I've heard from afar but not directly from her uh, since I was literally reading about her uh, as a high schooler and college or, uh, college athlete. So let's start from the beginning. You're surrounded by basketball as a kid. Your father's a coach. Both your siblings are playing um, especially as a tall kid, was there any doubt that basketball was going to be a part of your life? Uh, you know, I never really thought about it that way. I just loved to play. Um, my older brother six years older than me. My older sister a couple of years older. And um, and they would play. You know, we had a hoop in our driveway. We lived in uh, in a rural area in Massachusetts where there wasn't a whole lot to do. And, um, 
And to alleviate my boredom, I would go outside and shoot hoops all the time and loved basketball. Um, but, of course, back in those days, you know, in the 80s, there was no WNBA. There was very little college basketball that was on television. So a kid, a girl my age really didn't have any idea um, what the possibilities were in terms of playing basketball long term. So I just played it because I loved it. And then um, timing for me just worked out so well that, um, you know, WNBA started two years after I graduated and I was able to make a career of it. So were there other sports that you were into as a kid? Oh, yeah. Like I was, you know, a total, you know, what would be referred to as a tomboy in those days. I played soccer. I played basketball. Even in high school, I played uh, three sports uh, all four years. I played field hockey. So you can imagine a woman 6'4 running around with a stick. That was me. <laughs> uh, played basketball four years and then did softball for four years. So it was uh, kind of different. That was the days when everybody, uh, the good athletes, played three sports and you didn't just specialize in one from the time you were, you know, seven or eight years old as some crazy uh, kids do nowadays. So, um, yeah, I just, I loved all kinds of sports. I loved being active and, uh, and it wasn't until I got to college that I just focused on one. And what did you like outside of sports? What kind of kid were you? Were you quiet? Were you loud? Were you into math or science or English? I was super shy. Um, I think part of that was I was, you know, so tall for a girl to be that tall. You know, I, I was like six feet tall already in sixth grade. And um, and so, you know, I, I, I didn't like having attention drawn to myself, even though it was just because I w- walked around and looked different from every other kid that age. Um, so I was super shy. I was good in school. Both my parents were teachers. So, um, you know, I liked school. I liked uh, I liked hanging out with my friends, but mostly, you know, I liked playing sports on the weekend. Yeah, the tall thing. I was six feet by the time I was 12, so I was a little behind you, and then I stopped. So I never got to be as <laughs> as um, as tall as you, but I remember, for whatever reason, it did not manifest the same way. I was never shy because of it. I think my parents said, if you, if you crouch your shoulders down, you look like you're uncomfortable with who you are, so just stand up straight and be proud of it. And my dad has a good sense of humor, so I think that transitioned over to me. And instead of being shy, it made me a a bit of a clown, right? Like I'm going to make everyone laugh and then the attention will be for that and not for being giant. Um, So you end up going to university of of Connecticut that um, there were other places recruiting you, but this was nearby and you liked the academics there. Um, Was it what you expected when you got there? Well, it's funny because my parents, I grew up in Massachusetts, but right on the border of Connecticut. So both of my parents were teachers over the border in Connecticut. And uh, when I was being recruited, um, you know, I was being recruited by Stanford and Notre Dame and Northwestern and, you know, these elite academic institutions. And the one place my parents did not want me to go was UConn. And in particular, my mom, she was a guidance counselor, and she would say to me, you know, Rebecca, UConn's a safety school. Why do you want to go there? You can go to all these other schools, have your education paid for. Um, UConn's academic reputation now is, uh, is, is much better than it was in those days. Um, but I really, really wanted to play for Coach Oriama. He was, he'd only been there a few years at that point. He recruited me, he and Chris Bailey, who is still there as his associate head coach. I really wanted to play for them. And, um, and so I, I went there and uh, yeah, it was, it was everything I had kind of hoped it would be as a school, you know, right away, the seniors took us under their wing. They, you know, on the weekends we were going out and enjoying the college experience. Um, and then when we got to practice, once, uh, you know, the winter rolled around, it became a lot more difficult. Uh, and playing for him was, was a lot harder than I ever thought it would be. But uh, from the minute I stepped on campus, I really loved uh, being, being a student athlete at UConn. 
you said you were um, sort of shy growing up. And so I would connect that with also not wanting the attention of a coach yelling at you. What was it about the basketball court that made you someone who was tough enough and wanting to get the focus and oftentimes the ire of a coach like Oriyama? Um, well, I didn't want it. My, my, especially my first two years, I, I, I didn't want it. You know, I, at, through high school and middle school, I hadn't gotten a lot of, um, you know, really harsh criticism about my game. It had been, mostly been positive reinforcement from the coaches right. that I'd had. So I had a really hard time with it my first two years. Um, there were times my sophomore year I'd call home a lot complaining to my mom, and, and eventually she said, you know, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to go in and talk to Coach Oriama and figure this out, or you're going to transfer. She said, but you're not going to call me anymore because I can't do anything. I'm not going to go in and talk to him because this isn't my issue. This is your issue. And um, and so I did, and, and I was able to kind of communicate with him and, and work it out. But um, it was really hard for me to get the criticism that he doled out. I think it's still now. Um, it can take a player, uh, you know, at UConn a year or two years to really understand how to deal with his criticism and why he's giving it to you. And ultimately, it's just because he needs you to work harder than you've ever worked in your life. And that can be a hard thing to do. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't something I welcomed my first couple of years, that's for sure. But in hindsight, it changed who I was as a person. It changed, you know, kind of how I've approached the rest of my life in terms of work ethic and um, and, and understanding what hard work really is. So I guess when Oriema recruited you, do you think he pulled the bait and switch in terms of not letting on that that was his style? Or was there um, – what was it about him that drew you so much to play there, even potentially knowing that it was going to take you out of your comfort zone? Yeah, there's no bait and switch at all. That's the beauty of him <laughs> is he's, uh, he's completely honest with you from the jump. And, uh, you know, he, he never said you're going to start here. He never promised playing time. He just said you're going to get what you earn. And um, and that's the thing, like who he is off the court and who he was when he recruited me is exactly his personality. That's how he is now with his former players. That's that's how he is off the floor. Um, but you don't really understand what it's like. Even watching other, other people practicing, you can't understand what it's like to have that constant criticism on you, constant nitpicking. And it's just holding you accountable. You know, if you're in practice – you're doing something wrong every single time you do it wrong, he's going to bring it to your attention and he's going to let you know that it's not acceptable. And, um, and that can be hard to hear um, because, you know, never does he let anything slip. And now that I'm a parent, I understand how hard that is um, for him. Like, you know, as a parent, you, you let things slide sometimes just because you get so tired of hearing yourself <laughs> criticize your kid or correct your kid. And so for him to have the ability to to always hold those players accountable every single time, um, you know, it, it's it's a huge credit to him. And, but it's the reason they're so successful, because he doesn't let anything slip in practice. Yeah, we, we've all heard. <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. you said, it, it, you know, it ended up doing good things for you once you sort of get used to it, which pretty much almost every player I've heard says the same about that experience. So. What was it like to graduate? Um, you've you've done Olympic play. You've been at UConn, and then there's this new opportunity that's the WNBA. How certain were you that you wanted to be a part of that? Oh, completely, completely. You know, as a kid, the dream was maybe I'll be the first girl to play in the NBA. You know, mm. and, um, and and that's not really a realistic uh, expectation for a kid. Um, but as soon as I heard, because at the time there was another pro league that was being started, the ABL, the American Basketball League. Um, but as soon as I heard that the NBA and the force of the NBA and the ownership of the NBA was behind a league um, that and ultimately became the WNBA, I, I was all in. I just wanted to be a part of it. 
you know, um, to the thought of making money by playing basketball here. Because even before the WNBA started, there was professional basketball overseas, but that meant leaving your whole family, leaving everybody, all your friends, leaving the, the life that you know to go overseas in order to play. So when the WNBA started, the thought of being able to earn a living, staying in this country around your family and friends uh, to play, I was all in, 100% in. And, you know, we'll talk about some of the clips we see in the movie. Um, so I'm going to fast forward past that for right now. Um, I love the story of how you met your husband. And I remember um, literally reading and subscribing to Sports Illustrated and then putting two and two together and being so confused at how you were open-minded enough and forgiving enough for this to be the start of your relationship. So for those who don't know the story, uh, can you tell it quickly? Yeah, of course. Uh yeah, so Steve had been a writer at Sports Illustrated for a lot of years. Um, I had hurt my ACL, and um, and when you're doing rehab for for injury, especially that injury, one thing you can do for cardio is is ride a bike. So every day I'm on the bike for an hour. So I was always thrilled when a new Sports Illustrated would come in that week because then I could read it cover to cover while I'm while I'm pedaling away on the bike. And so I'd, I'd been reading Steve for a long time, but didn't know who he was. Had never met him. His picture wasn't with his column, so I had no idea who this guy was. Um, and I just happened to be in New York City. A, a, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, was showing me around the neighborhood. Um, where I was going to be living that summer while playing for the Liberty on the Upper West Side. And we ended up at a bar called the Dublin House, this dive Irish bar on the Upper West Side. And my friend John, who was showing me around, said a couple of the guys from Sports Illustrated are going to meet us out. So one of the guys who met us out was Steve. And, um, and I remember reading maybe two or three weeks before in one of his columns, he had made fun of WNBA. And um, so right after I met him, um, I said to him, I said, are you the guy who made fun of the WNBA a couple of weeks ago in your column? <laughs> And he said, you know, just turned all red. And he said, yeah, that was me. And I said, well, how many games have you been to? And he said, none. And I said, well, you're going to have to come to some because, you know, kind of this is unacceptable. <laughs> so um, so anyway, we, you know, that's, that's still how our relationship is now. We call each other's BS. But, uh, but we just became friends that summer. And eventually, you know, months later ended up dating. And now we're married with four children, three of them girls, who, uh, who gets to watch play basketball and other sports on a, <laughs> on a consistent basis. But... Um, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting way for two people to uh, to meet and then eventually get married. That's for sure. Yeah, the line he used was, uh, "Although Wilt Chamberlain claimed to have slept with twenty thousand women in his lifetime, I had once slept with seven thousand one hundred thirty eight women in a single night. We were all snoring in the stands at a WNBA game." Yeah. So it wasn't just making fun of it. And and yeah. to, to your point, you told them, how can you write about something and print it in a national magazine if you haven't ever been? Um, right. And, 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 and what I it, said to him, too, I yeah. said, you know, I said, first of all, if you'd been to the game, you'd know you had been snoring with 16,000 women because that's how many we draw. <laughs> but he's actually he's actually horrified now when the story is retold and the, the actual the <laughs> quote is said, especially in the climate that we live in now, mm. and especially being the father of three daughters. So when, <laughs> when I retell the story, he prefers me to leave that particular part out. But hey, it's in print, so yeah. you're going to have to live that sorry. down for the rest of existence, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry, Steve, I'm not married to you, so I don't owe you that kind of edit, right? <laughs> That's exactly um, right. Right, but obviously a great dude, otherwise you wouldn't have married him and, and he would have, you know, learned his lesson. But that to me stood out because, um, you know, this is a guy who clearly isn't a, a total caveman. If by the time you became friends and, and and became married, it was clear that he didn't feel that way about women and women athletes. So if even someone like him could be so sort of 
I guess, brainwashed by the criticism around the start of the WNBA to become a part of the mob, making fun of it. I think that says a lot about the climate when it began and how it was presented to everybody, because it wasn't just the standard guys you'd expect. It, it kind of was a lot of people that bought into making fun of it. Well, I think the easy answer is because um, making the criticism was easy. And sometimes, you know, people go for the easy joke or people go for the easy laugh or whatever it is. And um, and that can be that can be what that is. And, and that's what can be so disappointing about it. I don't think it was just the WNBA. I think it's all of women's sports. Even if you've never watched, um, you feel like it's an easy thing to criticize. And so you do. Um, I've used this example for myself before. Like, I don't love sitting down and watching Premier League soccer. Um, it's just not my cup of tea, but I understand that those guys are phenomenal athletes and great at what they do. And I'd be an idiot to criticize it. So I don't know why, um, I don't know why so many people find it easy to criticize women's sports when they've never watched it. Um, especially, you know, in, in Steve's case, it was really disappointing that it was, um, a person who was smart and, um, and, and should have been better and, and ultimately is better. And, and, uh, you know, kind of saw the error of his ways. But um, I think that's a thing that women's sports tends to run up against um, even now. Yeah. So let's talk about basketball, a love story, because this is a good transition right into one of the clips that's in the movie. And it's it's Adam Silver talking about how they aired in the way they presented it and marketed it when it came out. And there's this incredible clip of Diana Taurasi, full face of makeup, silky halter top, in a photo shoot where they're having her sort of brush her hands through her hair like a pinup. And it's so jarring because I don't remember that and I never saw it. And I only know Tarasi as she is now. And she talks about how it just felt like she was whoring herself out and that she didn't need to do that and it wasn't natural. Um, this part of the 20-hour piece is going to be a part of October 30th, next week's um, airing. Um, and, and talk a little bit about that because you were part of that inaugural group um, and, and what was it about the way they tried to market it that just felt so off to a lot of the players? Well, I think, you know, it wasn't even initially. I think the first year might have been okay. You know, it was the whole We Got Next campaign. And they right. would show some of the women off the court looking how they normally do. And some women do, you know, get all dolled up and have their makeup and hair done and whatever. And then they, But they would balance it with on the court. But it was a few years after that. Because um, Tarasi was was a rookie in 2004, and that might have been around that time. And I remember Tisha Penichero, the great point guard for the Sacramento Monarchs. There was part of the commercial where she was wearing leather pants, like laying on the hood of a Corvette <laughs> or something absurd. And I just remember thinking at the time, what is going on here? You know, the, the women want to for to be seen as uh, more as as the whole person. You know, they weren't just these sweaty, ponytail, braided. Um, athletes. They were also off the court, um, very different than that, but not this. And it was, um, it was a really weird time that I think, you know, the, the, you look at the ad campaign now that the WNBA and NBA does for, for the WNBA, and it's much more authentic and true and real to who these women are. But yeah, there was definitely a, a stretch there where you kind of shook your head and said, you know, what exactly are we trying to do? Yeah, I remember loving the We Got Next campaign and being excited to, to think about it as a, I, you know, I didn't end up playing basketball in college. I did track, but thinking that it was so cool that this existed. And I thought that was a great campaign. So it is odd that they sort of elected to, and probably prematurely, right? They, oh, if this isn't exactly what we thought, we're going to move to this angle of, you know, 
feminizing and, and makeup and all sorts of stuff. Um, you in the piece in the film talk about how basketball was a place where you felt good about yourself as someone who had been sort of uncomfortable with her height and a little bit shy. It's so weird to then take that person who's so comfortable and in her own skin as a basketball player and then force her into a space that she isn't and try to sell that because it wasn't authentic, right? And it felt like people saw that. Yeah, I, th- I think without question. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the great things about sports for, for young girls is it's a place where you can go and you can get a true and real self-confidence, um, a true confidence because of what how you're performing. It's not about how you're looking or, or you know, any of the, um, the stuff that really doesn't matter, any, anything superficial. That's the beauty of sports is it's, it's authentic. It's who you are. You, you succeed or you fail and, and you get a confidence because of that and, and why it's so important. Um, and, yeah, and the league stood for that. And, uh, and so then for it to kind of go backwards to the place where, yeah, it doesn't matter what you did on the court. Um, we need you to look cute in front of the camera or be in leather pants on a, on a convertible um, <laughs> was just a really – it was a really bizarre way to do things. And, and, you know, I still in so many ways feel that, you know, there's always going to be a segment of the, uh, what would be, you know, a, a, the general sports fan who isn't going to like the WNBA, isn't going to care about it, is always going to make fun of women's sports and say get back in the kitchen or whatever that nonsense is. And you know what? We need to ignore that person. That person is never going to be a women's sports right. fan. They're never going to, they don't know how to treat women, period. So, so just ignore that person and go after the, the 13-year-old girl or, or the parents of the 13-year-old girl, the people who we still have a chance to make a fan of the sport. That's where the money should go. That's where the energy, energy should go. That's where the marketing dollars should go, not to whoever it was going to appeal to, to, you know, have Diana Taurasi in makeup running her fingers <laughs> through her hair. Uh, it's so true. And I, I, the same message is, is definitely what I get from Candace Parker when I've talked to her about this. Like, I... I'm, I don't. I don't care about that guy anymore. We got to stop talking and caring about him. She talks about how when she goes to camps, there are just as many boys as girls that want to wear her jersey and get her signature. And let's focus on this new generation who's been raised a little better to understand it and stop doing stories and think pieces on that that other group. Um, what did you think at the time, though? Because obviously, there's a lot of pressure in being a part of this inaugural kind of thing in the early years. What do you think you and the rest of the players felt? Was it sort of this is uncomfortable but necessary? They must know what they're doing? I think we were just so happy to have a league. Like, all right, whatever we need to do, we got to do it. You know, we got to we got to promote this. Um, and so if that meant, you know, putting on, you know, if you're Diana Trazi, if that meant putting on a whatever outfit and getting your hair and makeup done, okay. Because that's not, you know, crossing a huge line. You know, it's not like they were asking us to – wear these ridiculous spandex uniforms and, right. uh, and, and, and do anything that was wholly out of who, what we, what we were. Um, and, and we knew that the league was delicate because even in those first few years, you know, we expanded, we contracted, you know, you didn't know exactly. There's still a lot being talked about and written about, is this league going to, to make it? And I think especially early on players were like, I, we got to do whatever is necessary to make sure this league exists uh, again next year and the following year. And so we're much more willing to maybe do things that were uncomfortable or, or out of character for some just because you saw it as maybe helping promote the league and be good for the league. And at that time as well, you know, homosexuality, LGBTQ awareness and acceptance, like our country in the WNBA, was much more taboo. Were there overt conversations with players and coaches about steering clear of 
behavior or clothes or commentary that might cause fans to generalize the league and the players? There weren't conversations about steering clear, but um, but it was definitely noticed by the players that that segment of our fan base wasn't being recognized. Um, you know, and and that's kind of the beauty of the WNBA and in, in, in our culture in general in the last twenty years is how it's evolved. Um, you know, now the 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 gay and lesbian community, which has always been a strong part of the WNBA fan base, fan base is being embraced and is being recognized and being appreciated. Um, the players, you know, I think back in those days, maybe Sue Wicks, my teammate with the New York Liberty, may have been the only player in the entire league who had come out, um, even though there were plenty of, of lesbian women playing in the league. She was the only one who was um, out and open about it, whereas that's not the case anymore. Um, but, you know, you know, I think the biggest thing is the, that the players did talk about was, you know, we, we're kind of ignoring, we're pretending as if, you know, when you look up in the stands, you don't have a huge gay and lesbian uh, fan base. We're ignoring this part of our fan base that's been so important to us. And, and we would kind of just joke around about, you know, how long is the league going to be able to pretend that, um, that those fans are not sitting in the stands? Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because the league is much better at addressing it and being welcoming of their fans. Players in the WNBA are much more open about their sexuality now, but the college game hasn't got there yet. And I think even as of maybe two years ago, I think was the last time I read a, st- a story on it, that there was only one out female coach in college basketball because there is still such a stigma of parents not wanting to send their players somewhere where they think that that's the culture. Um, yeah, that's fascinating think- to me. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things that I'm proud of the WNBA for. Like, these players and the league itself and and the teams have been leaders in this area. Uh, you know, the, the inclusivity, um, the, the outspoken about social justice issues. The WNBA has really been at the forefront of all of it. If you look at the past few years, the WNBA players have, have stood up and fought for what's right before any other professional sports league and, and deserve a ton of credit for that. Um, why that hasn't trickled completely into the college game, I don't know. I think it's a lot better, though. You know, I was talking to a younger player recently who just said, you know, when I was, you know, being recruited in the 90s, uh, you know, coaches would use that in negative recruiting. Oh, you don't want to go there. That's that's a lesbian program or their coach is gay or whatever. That stuff was being said. Now, players, even though coaches may not be out or players might not be talking about it as much, it's not a taboo subject. It's not instilling fear in any high school kids anymore. It's part of the normal culture that we live in. Um, so that part of it is, is good. Um, but, I, but again, I, I think the WNBA uh, players, um, ownership groups, coaches have led the way in, 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 in such a positive way in terms of um, whether it's uh, LGBTQ issues or inclusivity or social justice issues. Uh, the WNBA and the women in the league have really been on the forefront of that. Yeah, and you mentioned the social issues, and obviously that was something um, with Eric Garner and others before um, that the WNBA was first to do, and now the league itself is doing it. And they launched the Take a Seat, Take a Stand campaign um, for the 2018 season where portion of ticket sales would be donated to one of six organizations that the fan would choose that would be anything um, from Bright Pink to Planned Parenthood. This is a very overt stance, especially when you compare it to, say, the NFL or other leagues that are trying their best to, to stay out of the connections between social issues and sports. Um, 
Why do you think that the that there's been a pivot to something as overt as this compared to maybe saying for so long that we we don't want to uh, to offend, we don't want to be associated with anything that will turn fans away? I think part of it is Adam Sil- Adam Silver and his leadership at the NBA and how that's trickled down to the WNBA. I think he's been tremendous listening to the players and understanding what's important to them and uh, and finding a way for them to have a voice and uh, and doing it in a way where it also hasn't hurt the business of the NBA. And I think that's, um, that's kind of the mentality that is then in, in the WNBA. You've got a lot of really smart women playing basketball in the WNBA and they they are they care about a lot of things and um and I think the league works well with them to make sure that their voices can be heard that that can be done in a productive way um and and that in a way unlike what we've seen sometimes in the NFL these women know how to get their message out without letting someone else cloud what their message is um you know whether it's if during the anthem, if they interlock arms, because, you know, that's not going to be confused with anything. Um, they can get their message out in, in a clear way. And, um, and the league has always worked well with them in the union so that they can do that. So let's talk about back to the, to the film basketball love story. You know, obviously you're heavily featured um, and Diana Tarazi, Cheryl Miller. Um, what are some of the parts of that that you think are, um, most interesting, especially to those who were excited to hear that the, that the movie would be incorporating female players and women's basketball history and storytelling as much as uh, as much as it did. Well, I mean, it's a big part of the game, and and for kids like me who grew up, you know, I grew up in the '80s watching the Celtics and the battles um, with, with the Celtics and the Lakers, and watching the Pistons and and the rise of the Chicago Bulls, that whole thing. So when I, that, that's one of the parts that I've been able to watch of it. And, and it's fascinating because you're like, oh, I live that. I remember that. It brings up all the emotions you had as a fan when you were watching these things. You know, so kids now have grown up watching the WNBA, watching women's college basketball. It's a part of, of their childhood. It's a part of their existence. And, um, and so it had to be a part of, of this documentary and, and it had to be shown because if it wasn't, it would be, you know, people would be saying, all right, what about the important part the women's game has played, especially over the last 30 plus years. And um, so I'm glad that they, they included as much as they did. Yeah. And speaking of that, during your incredible hall of fame speech, which was just wonderful and so charming and sweet and smart and, and powerful, you told the great story about your daughter and, and her realization about basketball. Can you share it? Yeah, my um, th- my oldest who's now 13 and a freshman in high school, and I'm wondering how the heck that happened. But <laughs> this was when she was about five years old. And, um, you know, I'd be watching basketball all the time in our house. I'm watching it on my iPad. I'm watching it wherever because I'm preparing to call the next game or be in studio or whatever. So I'm watching a ton of women's basketball. And it was March Madness, and I was on the road calling a game. And my husband had the UConn men's team on, uh, the television set. So my daughter, who's five, comes in, looks at the TV and said, um, Dad, are those boys playing basketball? And he said, yes. And she said, I didn't know boys played basketball, too. <laughs> and uh, it was so perfect because the world, the, the five years that she'd been alive, the world she'd been in, there had been a ton of women's hoops on in the house. And, um, and how different that is from when I was a kid. And uh, there was no women's hoops on in the house because it wasn't even broadcast anywhere. It's a, <laughs> it's a different world now and, and definitely a better one. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was growing up, my parents aren't really into sports. They like to play tennis and stuff, but they they didn't watch it. So my obsession with Michael Jordan and the Bulls and basketball is where my entire sports love came from. And that was just from, like I said, being a a six-foot-tall 12-year-old and being an athlete myself. And I would stay after basketball practice and try to hit, you know, baseline fadeaway jumpers and do all the things that Michael was doing. It would have been a lot better if I had had a women's player that was maybe a little bit more within reach to try to replicate the moves. (laughs) Um, But you talk about in the film about Larry Bird being sort of your go to. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts um, in the 80s. And so the Celtics were king. And I loved Larry Bird, loved Larry Bird. And, uh, you know, that's who I wanted to be. That's who I wanted to emulate. That's, you know, someday I'm going to be the first girl to play for the Boston Celtics. I actually wrote a letter to Red Auerbach when I think I was <laughs> in sixth grade. I'm going to be the first girl to play for the Boston Celtics. And, um, and you know, that was that's what, what it was. And, uh, and although, you know, I sure didn't look like Larry. I, I sure couldn't do the things Larry could do. <laughs> I could never imagine of being, you know, being a 30-year-old man, uh, fortunately, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it would have been different if I was watching Cheryl Miller, who was playing at that time, or Annie Myers, or Nancy Lieberman. That would have made it hit home a little bit more. Like, I can actually remember when I was a kid, Nancy Lieberman was, was played with the uh, Harlem Globetrotters for a little while. My parents took me, and they are like, you know, you got to go see. This is the first time I think I ever saw a woman basketball player live and uh mm. she was out there playing with the globetrotters and it was just like wow you know a woman a girl can do this and it it definitely has a greater impact in that way um then uh but still still to this day like i love larry bird my, my, i think one of my greatest accomplishments in life I, i'm a mother of four but one of my greatest accomplishments in life was making him blush at the hall at my hall of fame speech <laughs> i will uh i will absolutely never forget that yeah and you know um what's what's meaningful too about watching and seeing what you know this representation of yourself live um is is how we've seen it manifest itself in other ways you know the popularity of women's soccer because of that Mia Hamm Brandy Chastain World Cup team that our buddy Julie Foudy was on um and yep. and and you are seeing that in basketball absolutely in terms of interest from girls and how much they want to play and we're now seeing it come in the ratings and and in the success of the league as well this year it felt like the WNBA took a step forward in terms of eyeballs and interest and player narratives. Why do you think that is? To what do you attribute what looked like a bigger step than usual to me? Yeah, with, without question. When we were calling games, Ryan Rucco, Holly Rowe, and myself, uh, who called the, the, most of the uh, WNBA games, we were saying to one another, it feels like we're on the verge this year. Like, it feels like we're there. And I think it's a couple things. One is the play is amazing. I mean, these these games, every game is dramatic. It's well played. It's compelling. You know, there are times early on in the history of the WNBA where the 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 product on the court wasn't top notch. Partly because it was new, partly because there was another league that was in existence at the time. But right now, it is the highest level of women's basketball you can find anywhere. It is phenomenal. The product is great, and um, I don't know exactly what is going on culturally, but it feels like the WNBA is finally becoming cool to a certain segment of the population and um, and that it's becoming a thing, you know, I don't know if it's because NBA players like LeBron are tweeting about it and watching it. I don't know if it's because NBA players at the summer league are wearing Asia Wilson's jersey to the arena to play in their own game. I'm not sure what it is, but we're, but it's very close. The league is very close. I feel like kind of exploding and, um, and, and and our ratings supported that. We had great ratings during the during the regular season, the highest they've been 
Um, so people are catching on, but ultimately it's going to come down to the product on the court being amazing, and it sure has been, for especially the last three or four years. And the storytelling from from folks like you and other places too, that's always been such a, a cornerstone of what everyone says you need for new leagues, new players, is interest. That's why it works for the Olympics. That's why you're crying over people you had never heard of before in sports you don't care about is because they tell you why to care. Um, and, and, and patriotism, of course, or perhaps jingoism at times. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, there was a massive step taken this year, um, and so much of that too is these great personalities. I think social media helps too, Rebecca, because you you get to know players, and maybe then you are getting more authentic um, ideals of them versus when the league started and it was what was presented by marketing people. Yeah, without question. I mean, these women have a, they're they're smart, dynamic thoughtful women and, and they're they're not afraid to speak up about whatever it is and um and, and for sure social media lets you be aware of their personalities you know like holly Rowe is with us she's the best sideline reporter there is in the world she gets all this great content all these stories but there's only so much time during a game in which she can tell them but she'll put them out on her instagram feed or put them out on her twitter and she you know she, she'll say to me that video got a hundred thousand views or whatever it was so a hundred thousand people got to see an interview with this, you know, with Alicia Clark after Seattle wins the WMA championship, who wouldn't have otherwise known about this woman. And um, and so it's definitely playing a big part. Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing this part of the film. Everybody obviously can see them all already available on the ESPN app, all 62 short stories. But October 30th on television from uh, 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern is when the WNBA women's basketball focuses. And, and again, that great clip of Diana Taurasi, which is worth it just for that because it's so hilarious uh, and uncomfortable uh, and, and telling. Um, before we let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does but nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish okay. Inquisition. It's the same questions that everybody gets. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Singing. I wish everybody I could sing. Everybody says that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, then. Um, well, but what other natural talents are there? Like, I wish I was, I, oh, or jump really high. That would have been beneficial <laughs> to me as a player. That absolutely would have, yes. Uh, number two, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. My Desert Island album. Um, I grew up a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, so I'd stay with Bruce Springsteen. Can I go with his, like, complete box set, or is that sure. cheating? That gives it's kind me a of cheating, of albums, but I'll so. give it to you. All right, let me have that. Let me have that. (laughs) Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? If I could switch lives with anyone for a day? Yes. Um, well... I would say the president of the United States. I could, I could, uh, I could do some good things in a day. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. We'll leave it at that. I'll leave it there, but I, could, <laughs> but I could do some good things in a day. That's right. I bet you could. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? The most scared I've ever been was when I tore my ACL. The second, like, I went down, um, clutching my knee and thinking that I had just completely destroyed my knee but not being certain of it that was probably it oh yeah 
Uh, number five, what habit or quality do you think has most contributed to your success? My habit or quality that's most contributed to my success? Um, I think it would be um, a willingness to work hard even when it's uncomfortable, and I would, I would put all of the credit on that uh, character of mine to Coach Oriama teaching me how to work hard even when it's uncomfortable. It's a good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Hmm. I have to go back a while because of the, the beauty of being, you know, when you get into your like 30s and 40s is that you don't really get embarrassed anymore. <laughs> um, what is the most embarrassed I've ever been? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. There's no terrible, awkward moment in junior high that stuck with you forever. Junior high was nothing but terrible and awkward moment. <laughs> um, so just you know, junior high was, was your most embarrassing it, moment. <laughs> there, there was one. There was one. I remember being like maybe you know seventh grade. So I was over six feet tall at this point. And I don't even. I think it was at like a neighbor's wedding. And um and, and there's one boy who like took pity on me and asked me to dance. And um, I don't remember who he was, but like, you know, I was however old I was. I, I, I don't think I've been to a school dance yet or whatever. And I remember this boy asked me to dance. He's a short kid. And like, so I did what I saw in the movies. And I like, when I was dancing with him, I put my head on his shoulder, even though he was oh. super short. And I remember when I, after the dance, my sister looked at me and said, what? the hell did you just do and being absolutely horrified so if i remember that this many years later that clearly at the time was a a horrifically embarrassing moment oh that's good um number seven what would you consider your biggest failure my biggest failure hmm um i'm clearly somebody who focuses on the positive Sarah, because these kind of (laughs) things aren't like coming to me right away um my biggest failure, one of my disappointments, I'd wish that when I was in the WNBA, especially our first year we played for the WNBA championship, this was back before it was a series, it was a one-off game, the New York Liberty played Houston and we lost. Um, I don't necessarily call, consider that a failure, but if I could, you know, it was definitely a disappointment that I wish I could, could change to have been part of a team that won the first championship would have been pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, number eight, have you ever been in a fist fight? No. Have you? No, no. A girl tried to fight me, a, a townie from Ithaca, when I was in college, but I was like seven inches taller than her and had a feeling I would do damage. So I walked away and everyone was like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, ah, I don't really need to break someone's face and then have to deal with the repercussions just because she was drunk. So Yeah, and but you got to be careful. Townies can be scrappy. So Yeah, uh, yeah she did have her name on a, on a gold necklace around her neck, so that might have been a sign that I should have. And I did... <laughs> So I remember her name because it was on her necklace, Amber. And uh, I did a year and a half later while walking on the commons in Ithaca cross paths with her and she was pregnant. And I was like, nothing wrong with being pregnant. But I kind of was like, eh, it all worked out, karma. Yeah, it all worked <laughs> out. But uh, smart not to swing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, number nine. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? What would I most like to improve? I would like to improve my patience with my children. Mm-hmm. I think any parent would would understand that. Like, um, you don't, do you have kids? No, just dogs. Okay. So, so one thing I've learned about having kids is that 
my kids bring out the absolute worst in me. <laughs> and like when I'm when I'm parenting and scolding and that sort of thing, I'm like, this is the the version of myself I like the least is my parents' <laughs> self. So I wish I had more patience when it came to uh, to dealing with the craziness of being a mom. Yeah, I'm sure that you are not alone in that. Uh, finally, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? I would hope they would use um, caring, compassionate, and thoughtful. I think those mm. would be, uh, that, that would be, that would, that's my hope. If I can come across to people as caring, compassionate, and thoughtful, I will have uh, done my job. Excellent. Uh, and the bonus question, who would you recommend I have on the podcast to chat with? Oh, without question, you need to have my husband on at some point. Uh, <laughs> he needs can, to tell can, his side of the story. <laughs> he needs to tell his side of the story, how he has evolved in his thinking. And um, just because he's the funniest person on the planet, uh, <laughs> it might make for entertaining guests. All right. I love it. Hey, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to chat with me. Uh, thank you. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is a throwback to 2012. Um, and it's by Steve Russian, uh, Rebecca Lobo's husband. The headline is Lobo School's Sports Writer in Women's Game. And it's from the Hartford Current back in 2012. And uh, it is about that moment that they met and the line that he wrote about Wilt Chamberlain and snoring in the stands, the WNBA game. And it's about her kind of teaching him the ways of the WNBA, of women's ball, what he learned about how... Um, how to respect and understand and appreciate women's sports. And uh, back in 2012, this was sort of a, a defining moment, I would say, in, in him atoning for that initial story and also talking about how she had, like he said, schooled her in women's games. So uh, check it out. Again, it's Lobo School Sports Writer in Women's Game by Steve Russian from the Hartford Courant. Uh, thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.